Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a message from our current study, What's in a Name? What's in a Name dives into the history and significance of the names of God found in the Old Testament. During this series, we'll drill down into eight of the Hebrew names for God and learn what they reveal about who God is for us. To watch any of our previous messages or find all listening platforms, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. Enjoy. Well, good morning, everyone. It is so good to be with you here at Valley Brook this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Harrison, and I get to serve on the elder board here at Valley Brook. Uh, and it's, I'm just so excited to be continuing our series with you called What's in the Name, where we are looking at the various Hebrew names of God uh, together. Before we get started, uh, though, I would just like to throw out a quick reminder that if there are any kids K through eighth grade here in the room, uh, we have Sunday school happening. So uh, if you haven't gone that way, uh, you, can, you can do that now. Well, we live in a pretty interesting time uh, where many of us here in America have unprecedented access to all kinds of stuff. You know, if I want to buy something, I can usually go to Walmart or Costco or Home Depot or hundreds of other stores that are pretty close in driving distance and, and find it. And in the rare case that I can't find something that I'm looking for at a store, I can pretty much always go online and order it, and it'll show up in my doorstep within a matter of days. It's pretty remarkable. And in the uh, not just the stuff that are in the stores or online, we also have pretty cool access to all kinds of food that comes from around the world. Uh, I learned this recently about table grapes, the kind of grapes that you eat, not the kind that are used in wine. Uh, but there's a pretty interesting cycle of production and shipping for grapes. Um, so the thing about grapes is they don't ripen when they're not attached to the vine. So you can't pick them and have them ripen later. They have to be shipped and sold within a couple of weeks of being harvested. They also only grow in temperate climates. There's only a few parts of the world where they'll grow reliably. Um, so what ends up happening, for at least for the US grape market, uh, is that Central California will provide the grapes for all of America from about July to November. And then Peru takes over uh, from December to mid-February. Then Chile, which is kind of like the California version of the southern hemisphere, uh, at least in the grape world, uh, ships out grapes from mid-February to mid-May. And then we go back to southern California to fill in the grape gap from mid-May to mid-July. So when you add all of that, on, and then on top of that shipping and logistics, you've got an intricate, complex system that makes it possible for Harrison in Granby, Connecticut to eat a grape whenever I want to. It's kind of an amazing thing. And that's just one variety of food. Almost every single thing we see in a store is the coordination of multiple companies, multiple people, multiple modes of transportation, and multiple technologies all working together to make it as easy as possible for you and me to buy it. But as incredible as our modern supply chain is, the past couple years have shown us just how fragile it can be. Between a global pandemic that has shut down manufacturing and shipping across the world, and natural disasters like droughts and infestations, 
there was a big cargo ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal last year, and most recently, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. All of these things have made it so that supply has had a hard time keeping up with demand. And because of all of this, there is a phenomenon that has kind of worked its way back into our common vocabulary. We call it the shortage. It feels like every month since March of 2020, we've had a new shortage. I think the first one we all noticed was the toilet paper shortage that kicked off the pandemic. Thankfully, we got through that. Um, but then there's like a semiconductor shortage, which meant that there was a computer chip shortage, which meant that they couldn't manufacture as many new cars. So everybody bought all the used cars, so it was hard to find a car anywhere. And then there were shortages on lumber, which meant new houses weren't being built. So all the existing houses got bought up. Uh, and so it was like, good luck finding a new place to live if you had to move. And if you did get a chance to buy a place to move, uh, you couldn't find any furniture to actually put in your new place to live anyway. Apparently, uh, there was a shortage of garden gnomes at some point last year. <laughs> Didn't know that that many people were interested in those, but it happened. Uh, and more recently, we've experienced shortages in things like baby formula, oil, and eggs. And on top of being short on all the things, you know, multiple industries are now also facing labor shortages. So they have a hard time actually selling the products or services that they can provide. And what we here in America have been experiencing recently, although it's not so new in other countries, is the reality that we live in a world where resources are scarce. And it's not just the tangible, physical resources that feel scarce these days. We also experience shortages in the intangible resources as well. How many of you feel like there's never enough time in the day? It feels like as our to-do lists get longer, it seems like the days seem to get shorter and shorter, right? Or, or maybe you feel like you don't have enough of an emotional or mental margin to deal with the problems in your own life, let alone the problems of the people around you. Maybe you're feeling some kind of shortage of control and that you feel like your life is going off the rails or this world is going off the rails and you can't do anything to stop it. Maybe you're experiencing a shortage of relationships and acceptance from others. And as much as technology and social, social media make our lives more efficient and more connected, they also sap our time and our energy and our focus, and they emphasize the things that other people have that we don't. It's no secret that loneliness is at an all-time high, and it's a bigger problem now than it ever was. So in a time and a place where we have more at our fingertips than ever before, feelings of scarcity still dominate our world, our culture, our relationships, and ourselves. But the problem of scarcity is not new. Humanity has wrestled with not having enough for a long, long time. And so today we're going to go way back to about the year 2000 BC, where a man named Abram and his wife Sarai were facing a shortage problem as well. We first hear about this in Genesis chapter 15, when God speaks to Abram in a vision. He said, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? 
And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So here we see that Abram and his wife Sarai had a child shortage. They didn't have an heir to carry on their family legacy. And to make matters worse, we know from other contexts in the book of Genesis that they were way past childbearing age. They're probably in their 80s at this point. But God comes to Abram in this vision and is like, I'm going to provide entire nations through you. And if I was Abram, I'd be like, how is that even possible? Uh, but his response here is actually pretty remarkable. He believed the Lord, and God credited it to him as righteousness. I wish we had time to read some of the incredible things that happen after this point in more detail, but I'll have to give you the cliff, the cliff notes. Uh, so some time passes, and a Abram and Sarai are, are wrestling with this promise from God, and they actually make some pretty bad decisions along the way. But God reiterates his promise of a son to them and even gives them new names to make his point. Sarai became known as Sarah, and Abram became known as Abraham, which literally means father of many. And one day, when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90 years old, she became pregnant. I'm no biology expert, but I'm pretty sure that's a miracle from God. And when the son was born, they named him Isaac. And just as God had said, they had an heir to carry on their family. Abraham trusted that God would make good on his promise, and he did. He had filled their shortage. But God still had one more test for Abraham. And as we'll see, this would be the hardest thing that Abraham would ever have to do. We jump back into their story in Genesis chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. And I'll take a quick time out here because when we hear this request, we're probably all thinking, how could a good and loving God ask someone to sacrifice their only son? And this is really challenging, but I find the words of Pastor Mark Batterson to be really helpful to hear. Uh, he writes, it's not God's character that is on trial here, but rather our character and our thoughts and attitudes that are on the stand as we read challenging parts of Scripture. Abraham had enough trust in God's character not to question him. So we continue reading in verse three. Early ne the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. And listen to this, we will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he carried himself, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. 
As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and lay him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld me from me, your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket was a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. This is a pretty intense story. I mean, after a lifetime of scarcity, God gave Abraham a son. And he promised that through that son, Abraham would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. It's, it was an incredible blessing. But then God asked Abraham to give Isaac back. I can only imagine how Abraham must have felt. But God had come through for Abraham before. And as Abraham proceeded, he must have remembered that God was faithful to him in the past. And so he did what God had asked, and he passed the test. And on the top of that mountain, with all that mixture of emotion and tension and trust, and then seeing the ultimate culmination of God coming through in his goodness and his faithfulness, Abraham declared that God is Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord will provide. So what's in the name? What does Jehovah-Jireh mean to you and me in 2022 A.D.? In our world, which is filled with scarcity and shortages, what does it look like for us to know God as our provider? I think when we typically think of God as our provider, we immediately jump to thinking about how he provides for our physical or material needs, stuff like uh, shelter or health or clothing or money or things like that. And while God does care for our practical needs and well-being, I think there's some deeper needs that each one of us has that only God can provide for. And so as we unpack this story of Abraham, I think we'll find three key ways in which God is our provider. The first and most important way that God is Jehovah Jireh is that he is the provider of the sacrifice that saves us. Though God didn't allow Abraham to kill Isaac, the ram that God provided in the thicket was killed on the altar that day. And that ram was one of countless animal sacrifices that happened throughout the Old Testament. So we ask ourselves, why were animal sacrifices such a big deal? You see, humanity has a major problem. When, when Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God, their relationship with him was broken. And his holiness and his justice demanded that they could no longer be with him. And what started with Adam has actually been passed down to all people 
In his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul writes that just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all sinned. And so Adam's sin and Abraham's sins and my sins and your sins have created this separation from the God of life and goodness. And it isn't just a shortage. It's a spiritual death. So to compensate for this, people in the Old Testament would sacrifice animal after animal to cover the judgment that they deserved. And for thousands of years, there's this constant cycle of sinning and sacrifice, sinning and sacrifice. And humanity was incapable of breaking the cycle. But that cycle wasn't the end of the story. Jehovah Jireh had a plan, and the story of Abraham is actually such an incredible foreshadowing of what God was going to do. 2,000 years after Abraham lived, and 2,000 years before now, God brought his only son into the world. Jesus was fully God and fully man, and showed all of us how to live a perfect life. But he didn't just come here to show us how to live. Just as Abraham had told Isaac that God himself would provide the lamb, when John the Baptist first saw Jesus, he said, there is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And just as Isaac carried the wood on his back up the mountain of Moriah, Jesus carried the wooden cross on his back up to the mountain of Calvary. God's only son was put on the execution block But this time, the knife didn't stop. There's no ram in the thicket to take the place of Jesus. But Jesus' sacrifice did so much more than any and all animal sacrifices across history could ever do. Once and for all, Jesus paid the price for all sins of all humanity, taking on the judgment of our continued rebellion against God. Going back to Paul's letter, In Romans, we read that the result of God's gracious gift, that's Jesus, is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. No amount of money or stuff or fame or even good deeds could ever dig us out of the pit of lifelessness that we had dug ourselves into. But God, Jehovah Jireh, has provided for our deepest, most fundamental need. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, we can go from spiritual death to eternal life and be in a right relationship with God. Not by anything we could do, but entirely by what Jesus has done. And all we have to do is accept that incredible gift through faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, we can receive the righteousness of Jesus by believing in him as well. And our salvation is the foundation for living beyond a scarcity mentality. Without it, it doesn't matter what we have or we don't have. But with it, in any circumstance in life, whether it be a time of shortage or a time of plenty, Jesus has restored us to an eternal life that can be never 
that can never be taken away. I don't know about you, but knowing that God has provided for me in the biggest thing in life has helped me feel confident that he'll provide in the smallest things as well. I love how Paul says it in Romans when he says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? We can trust that God, our Savior, is also our provider in all things. But this might raise a question for us as well. You know, if God says that he will provide us all things, you know, why do I feel like I still don't have enough? You know, what, I might have some genuine needs, either you or somebody that you love, that you need the provision of something like healing or shelter or financial stability or peace or safety or some other kind of basic need. Why can't God just snap his fingers and make all of those things appear? Well, these really important questions lead to a second way that God is Jehovah Jireh. He is the provider of the trials that refine us. Now, I know this might sound counterintuitive at first. You know, how, how is a trial or a test a good thing that is provided to us? Um, I, I mean, I don't know if any of you here have gotten to the end of a semester at school and the teacher gives you a really hard final exam and you're like, thank you, teacher, this is exactly what I needed right now. This extremely difficult activity along with everything else that's going on in my life. Teachers, by the way, really appreciate you. Thankful for what you do. But most of us don't like taking tests. Um, I don't think Abraham liked the test that God gave him either. So why did God test Abraham? Why does he provide times of shortage for us? Well, I think when we look at God's word, we can find a couple of reasons why sometimes shortages in life can actually be blessings in disguise. The first thing that trials and tests do is they remind us to rely on God and not on his gifts. God does give us good gifts to bless us, and he knows that we have a tendency to make those gifts our God. God gave Abraham Isaac, a miracle son who would carry on his legacy and his family. But God knew there would be a temptation for Abraham to hold Isaac higher than the one who provided him. And you and I are the same way. God will give us blessings of stuff like money or a house or good health uh, or close friendships or romantic relationships, a child or family, or even a passion or a dream. And there's a temptation for us to value that person that, or that thing more than we value God. And even though those are all good, God-given things, they're not able to be our God. They're not meant to be. God knows that his gifts will never be able to sustain us on their own. So he often tests us by taking those things away. And in those moments, he wants to remind us that he himself is the one who's there for us, that he is our ultimate, unwavering source of grace and fulfillment. For us stubborn humans, it often takes a shortage for us to remember that we need God more than we need anyone or anything else. God's supply of grace will never run out. We just need to remember to access it. I like how the great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said this. Uh, he said, it's a good thing to be without a trouble, but it is a better thing to have a trouble and know how to get enough grace to bear it. 
And that's the other benefit that we get from trials and tests that God brings us in this life. We grow in perseverance. The New Testament writer James highlights this in his letter to the church when he writes, consider it pure, pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Jesus provides us salvation and meets us right where we are, not by anything that we, we had done or who we are. All we have to do is accept him in faith. But God loves us too much to leave us where he finds us. He has a purpose and a plan for each one of us and desires for us to grow in a loving relationship with him and to be filled with his joy. And it's this unshakable joy and oneness with God that, is, that James is referring to when he talks about being mature and complete here. And he says that the way that we get there is through trials that develop our perseverance. Perseverance is essentially the ability to continue in faith even in the face of difficult circumstances. And our, our faith is like a muscle. It grows and becomes stronger when it, we are stretched beyond our current experience. And as we continue to trust God in harder and harder circumstances, we become more refined and prepared to step into the purpose that God has for our lives. Jesus described this process beautifully in John 15. He said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Just like grapes can't grow or ripen when they are not attached to the vine, you and I can't produce fruit unless we are rooted in Jesus. Not the gifts that he gives us, but Jesus himself. He is our single source of daily grace and truth. Sometimes God needs to provide us with shortages to help us see that. And even when we do trust him, he will prune us so that we can be more fruitful in this life. God did the same thing with Abraham. All the tests and trials that God brought Abraham through developed his faith and his perseverance so that he could be ready to fulfill the enormous purpose that God had for him. To be the father of God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. But God's plans didn't just include the Israelites. When Jesus arrived, he came not only to redeem the Jewish people, but also to expand the people of God, to include anyone that would come to put their faith in him. In Galatians, Paul writes that these non-Jewish believers or Gentiles, which includes you and me, are now like Isaac, children of promise. And this new group of people is the church, united not by family blood or nationality or ethnicity or culture, but by a faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. And this is the third way that God provides for us. He has created a community to care for us. 
There are actually 169 verses in Scripture where it talks about how God provides for us. And many of those things can and do come directly from God himself. But a lot of times, God's primary way of meeting our shortages and our scarcity is through his people, through the church. God has filled his people with his spirit and uses us to provide for each other's needs, to give each other encouragement, uh, love, relationships, and sometimes healthy challenges to help us grow as well. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with uh, my wife Casey and I's story, uh, we moved up here six years ago from Georgia and you know, we're, we were kind of an unknown territory up here in Connecticut. And if you're tracking along with our life group study uh, during the week, I share more about that in the video. And if you got the news and reminders email this week, actually, Casey uh, described that story beautifully there as well. So I won't go into too much detail, but essentially, God provided in a huge way for us by bringing us the community here at Valley Brook. And whether you are facing a shortage right now or not, I would encourage you to get plugged in here at Valley Brook as well, or at any church where there is a foundation of who Jesus is and what he taught. But our heart here at Valley Brook is to love God and love people, and we want to do that for you and alongside you. And that's the flip side of, of this, is that those of us who do belong to Jesus are called to be a community who cares for others. I like the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrases uh, these verses from the book of James when he says, Dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance, you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half-starred and say, Good morning, friend. Be clothed in Christ. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And walk off without providing so much as a coat or a cup of suit. Where does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? We, as the church, the people of God, are called to be the solution for the shortages of others. God wants to use you and me to provide for those who are in need in our community. God has called us to love others, and we are best able to do that when we trust him to provide for our needs. You know, the reality is it's really hard to love and provide for other people when we're living out of a scarcity mindset. And we can think of tons of examples of when you don't feel like you have enough of something, it's hard to give to other people. I mean, take driving in traffic as an example. Uh, when you have a little bit of limited amount of time to get where you want to go, it seems like everything every car does is like, oh man, cut me off. But if you have a lot of time to get to where you're going, it's like, okay, yeah, you can get in front of me. It's fine. In the same way, when we have an abundance mindset that only comes from God, we can be generous and loving for the people around us. That comes from knowing that no matter what the circumstances are in our lives, that God has provided first for our deepest need through salvation in Jesus, and that he is continually strengthening us in faith and trust in him. Jesus says in the book of Matthew, therefore do not be anxious, saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For your heavenly father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will 
be added to you. So as we go from this place today, my encouragement for all of us is to lean in to what Jehovah Jireh is calling us to do. For some of us, God might be uh, highlighting somebody in our mind that we can step in and provide his provision through us. Some of you might be looking for a community of people to come alongside you. You know, if, if that's you, we'd love to get to know you here at Valley Brook. Uh, we'd love to encourage you to join a life group because that's a great way for God to provide for you through his community of people. Now, other you might be going through a time of pretty significant shortage right now. If that's you, I would encourage you to lean into God's grace, his mercies that are new every day and trust in him through the trial and know that he might be growing you for an even greater purpose in your life. He didn't promise this life would be easy. Uh, in Romans, we read that God works all things for the good of those who love him though, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, in a moment, we're going to uh, celebrate communion here at Valley Brook, um, which is just an incredible time for us to remember uh, what Jesus has done. Um, and so as we kind of move towards that moment, you know, if you're joining us online, I, I would love to encourage you to grab um, some juice or, or some bread to celebrate alongside us. Uh, and if you're here in the room and you haven't gotten a communion cup yet, uh, I would encourage you to raise your hand so we can get that to you. Um, raise some high. But as we approach this time together, you know, we first uh, should take the opportunity to orient our hearts to what we're walking into. Um, so in, in a moment, we're going to have a time of confession together where we're going, we have opportunity to share with God the things that have been keeping us from following him, the sins in our life. And some of you might have an Isaac that God is putting on your heart, something that might have been a good gift from God, but you have placed above God. And so as you examine your own heart, I encourage you to discern if there's something that you're relying on and trusting on more than God. And when we open our hands to receive what God has for us, we also have to let go of what we're holding on to in order to receive that. And finally, there may be someone here or someone listening where you haven't received that greatest provision of God, the death and the resurrection of Jesus on your behalf. Well, the good news is today, you can receive that gift from God. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, it is free and it is available now. All you have to do is accept it. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.